Well, Nike is set to spend $4.6 billion this year alone to inspire you to do one thing. See, Nike believes in their heart that locked within each one of you, there's an athlete waiting to break free. (laughs) And they have used basketball players, soccer stars, children. They've even used politicians to inspire you and help you understand and ask and compel you to do just one thing. Just do it. Just do it. Let the athlete out and just let it happen. And I think, you know what? I think the Apostle Paul sees church the same way. I think the Apostle Paul sees the church of Ephesus. A church filled with good people who love Jesus. But they don't understand who they are. And locked within each and every one of those believers that there was something that God is stirring within them and wanting to do in their lives and through their lives if they would simply just do it. Most believe that's what inspired Paul to write the letter of Ephesians. He wanted to help a good church back then and I believe even still a good church like CVCC today to understand not just who God made them to be, but what their life should look like day by day. See, the first three chapters of the letter of Ephesians has been focusing on Paul helping us understand who we are. In the first verse, Paul wrote his letter and he called us saints, Instruments that were set apart from this world by God, filled with his glory, so that we would be a reflection of his glory. So we would be instruments of his hand at work in our world. And then Paul went in and described all the blessings that we received. Everything that God has given to us. And then after that, Paul gave this great prayer. Ephesians 1.18, he said this, I pray. Paul says, man, I pray someday that you'll get it. That your heart may be enlightened, that your eyes would be open, that you would truly understand who you are. And look what he says, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling in your life. That every morning you wake up with an excitement and anticipation of what God not only can do in your life, but can do through your life. Paul says, I pray someday that you get it. He says, I pray someday that you'll understand what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance. May I pray, Paul says, I pray someday that you won't live your life based on focusing on what you get, but focusing on living your life to make sure that Jesus gets what he deserves. And he says, and I pray that someday you'll get what is the surpassing greatness of his power. That every day you wake up with less anxiety, less worry, less concern about the future and the present because you know the God of all creation, the God who created everything out of nothing and holds all world powers in the palm of his hands is still at work, not only in this world, but in your life and through it. Paul says, I pray someday you'll get it. 
He spent the next two chapters helping you understand exactly how God saved you. How did you become a saint? You didn't become a saint based on what you did, based on what you earned, based on what you accomplished, or even what you paid. It was strictly based on God's grace. He loved you. He saved you. He made you a saint. And he did all of it so that you can't boast about who you are right now. And then Paul finished the first three chapters with another prayer. Paul says, I pray that you'll be strengthened to your very core. I pray that you will grow an understanding of everything that God is to you and for you. And then lastly, he said, I pray that you would be filled with power. That God would be able to accomplish more than you ask, think, or even imagine. According to the power that's already at work, it's already building and growing this in your life. Paul says, I pray that you someday will understand all that God wants to do in a good church like this. So I think Paul, Paul knows that churches are filled with good people who love Jesus. But they're not convinced on who they are and what God desires for them to do. And so after three chapters of the Apostle Paul helping us understand who we are Chapter 4, he begins a transition. He's no longer telling us about who we are. He's now moving on to now, because you know who you are, I want you to just do it. Just walk, just live life. Look what he says. Chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Paul says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, I implore you. That term implore, by the way, it means to convey a very strong encouragement to exhort or beseech. Those of you who have kids, I believe you know what Paul is feeling right now. You have had endless conversations with your children about what needs to happen. You have given them every rationale and every reason why this is the right step to take. You have endured their questions You have endured their worries. You have wrestled through their procrastination. And now it just comes time where you look at, in my case, your sons and say, just do it. (laughs) That is the heart of Paul in chapter four. We spent three chapters helping you understand who you are based on the power of Christ Jesus, that he has formed you as a church and a believer and the people who are instruments of his divine glory. And it's time to go. And Paul says, I'm done hearing about your concerns, your worries, your kooky culture. I'm done answering all of your questions. How's it work? Just do it. Paul says, I'm begging you. I'm exhorting you with everything I am. Look at what he's asking. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called. A term walk means to live each day in such a way that it's a reflection of all that God has given you and all that Jesus has done in you. Paul says, I pray everything that we've talked about in chapters one through three, I'm begging you, live that way. Live that way. The first point I'd like to share with you is this. Paul's saying, I'm begging you, walk as one. 
walk as one. And look, he, look how he describes it. You might say, well, Brian, what's that look like? Like if I'm going to live my life differently as a reflection of God, as a, as a saint, as someone who has been set apart and empowered by the spirit of God to reflect God's glory in kooky California, what's that look like? And I'm so glad you're asking. Because Paul spends the next three chapters clearly defining what that looks like. First thing he says this, look at verse two. It says, with all humility. By the way, that phrase with all means full to the top. Like this isn't just, I want your life to have a flavor of this. I want your life to have some sort of inkling of that. No, no, no. He's saying, I want your life to be fully filled up, fully defined. This is a fully fleshed out characteristic of your life. You are fully, completely humble. It's the first one, fellas. I'm going to speak to fellas directly for just a moment. It's the first one. Man, you want, Paul's like, I'm begging you live as a disciple of Christ, as an instrument of God with all humility. That term humility. Walk your life with lowliness of mind. Don't see yourself as your mama sees you. See yourself as you really are. You know what I'm talking about. Fellas, when your mom sees you, she sees perfection. You would be a pro athlete right now if that coach would have put you in the game in eighth grade. You'd be a model right now if people saw the beauty in your life the way that your mom sees the beauty in your life. In your mom's eyes, you are perfect. Don't live life that way. Because that's not reality. Open your eyes and don't look at yourself the way your mama sees you. Look at yourself the way God sees you. You are broken. You are separated. You are worthy of destruction until God came and cleaned you up. Paul says, I want you to walk. You want to know how to live a life as an instrument of God. Do it with all humility, lowliness of mind, not arrogant and proud and look at everything I've accomplished, but recognizing everything you have and everything that you are has been handed to you by Jesus Christ himself. Fellas, can I ask you, are you full of humility? Not moments of humility. Are you full of it? If you're not sure, turn to the person next to you that knows you best and ask them, am I humble? Am I full of humility? If you won't ask, you already know the answer. (laughs) And if the person next to you responds with anything different than, heck yeah, heck yeah, oh yeah, you're full of humility. Fellas, I want to encourage you one last time. Join me at the men's retreat. Like how he did that? Uh-huh. You think I just sit in my office all day? No, no, no. I think of this stuff. Hey, here's why I want you to go to the men's retreat. Accommodations, I'm going to be straight up honest with you. Eh. Food, we're going to do our best. Activities, fellowship, it's going to be great. Here's why I think you need to come, because we're going to be spending two days focusing on humility in the life of a man. What it looks like how we should do it, and why we need to bother. 
And if you're not signed up for the men's retreat and you're not doing anything important next weekend, football doesn't count. I want to ask you, sign up today. I asked Pastor Jeff, can I have one more day? One more day to push you, challenge you, exhort you, implore you, just do it. Go to the men's retreat. You got to sign up today because we're locking things in tomorrow. You can sign up at the information center, talk to Pastor Jeff, talk to myself. If you're like, Brian, I want to go. I don't have the money. I can't get there. I don't have a car. Talk to one of us. We'll get you. Don't let money stop you from growing in the number one characteristic. Paul says, man, you want to be a disciple of Christ. You want to be a saint in this world. You want to know what it looks like. It looks like all humility. My last push, gentlemen, I'm asking, I'm imploring. I'm just, it's the first on the list. And I don't think it's a characteristic that most Christian men excel at. Let's grow in it. Paul says, I implore you, I'm begging you, walk. If you know who you are and everything God has done for you, please walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk in all, with all, to the fullness of your life. If they describe you as anything, let it be humility. Paul's not done, though. He says, I also want you to walk with all gentleness. The term gentleness is described as as, uh, to walk with domesticated strength. So one of my favorite illustrations for this, about a crocodile. You know much about crocodiles. Crocodiles have a bite strength. Let me find it in my notes. A bite strength of up to 3,700 pounds per square inch. Right? Just to give you a little idea of how much that is, you want to eat a good steak, not a steak I cook, a good steak, you need 150 pounds per square inch to bite it. Right? A lion, a hyena, have roughly 1,000 pounds per square inch. So a crocodile has upwards of three times the bite strength of a lion and, and a hyena. And yet, you know how they birth their young oftentimes? They take their eggs into a mouth that can snap an adult femur in one bite and they roll it gently along their teeth to loosen the shell so the baby crocodile can come out. You want a picture of gentleness? That's it. Immense power. Man, they have the ability to just crush those eggs. But it's restrained power utilized intentionally for production. Paul says, you're the same way. I'm begging you. Have gentleness. Gentleness isn't weakness. Gentleness is actually knowing how much strength and power and opportunity you have, and yet you reserve it and you use it intentionally and strategically for God's glory and production. Man, as Christian people, we have a lot of power. We love to focus on all of our rights. Paul says, I want to encourage you as Christians. Walk with all humility and walk with all gentleness. You might have the ability to toast and roast someone else. Don't. You might have every right to let them have it. Don't. Paul says, you want to know what it looks like to walk as a saint among this culture? All humility, all gentleness, not weakness, reserved power, reserved strength used strategically for production 
and a purpose. Paul continues, all humility, all gentleness, I'm still just in verse 2. We're speeding up, I promise. All humility, gentleness, with patience. A term patience, term means to be slow to avenge wrongs, to be able to wait for God to dispense justice instead of you taking that on yourself. You, don't know what it, you want to know what it's like to be a saint in our culture. All humility. God, the fact that you can do anything through me is a direct testimony of your power. All gentleness. God, I know you've given me such power and I can just roast people and let them have it, but I'm not going to because I trust that you're going to do a work. And patience, I can wait all day. I know you built everything out of nothing. You can have your way in this. By the way, I want you to notice the first three characteristics don't have anything to do with what you do to others. These are characteristics of your own heart, your own life, your own ego. First thing Paul says, you want to address, you want to live as a saint. There's three things you need to address in your own life. Work on your humility. Work on your gentleness. Pray for your own patience. And I know there's people, that old adage, don't pray for patience. Good heavens, don't pray for patience. God's going to bring all this stuff. I think Paul has the opposite view. Bring it. If that's what it takes for us to be an instrument of God, a reflection of God's glory in our kooky culture, if God needs to teach us patience, bring it. It's third on the list. It's something we need to grow in. And now, after those three characteristics, he continues and says, and here's what it looks like towards one another. He says, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, and now look how we do it. Showing tolerance for one another in love. Great way to uh, put that in our vernacular. Learn how to put up with one another, even the ones that are hard to love. Learn how to put up with one another. And I thought it would be kind of fun for all of us to just take a moment and yell out the name of that one person who's hard to love. But I thought maybe that wouldn't be good for unity. But we all know that one person, don't we? There's one in all of our lives. They're just crusty and they're hard to love. And if you're anything like me, you do what you can to avoid them, right? That's what good Christians do. We just avoid hard people. If they come to first service, we go to second service. That's why second service is just so much fuller than first service. They all go to first service. Y'all come to second service. That's how it works. That's why we have two doors. The hard to love ones go through one door and those people who want to avoid them go in the other door. This is how we do it. But Apostle Paul, you want to be an instrument? You want to have a testimony? You want to be a a saint in our culture. Learn how to put up with one another. And here's what I want to focus. In love. See, Christians, we're good at putting up with one another. We'll just ignore you. That's not what Paul's saying. Learn to put up with one another in love. That term love is agape. It's that term that defines God's love for us and our love for one another. It's committed. It's communal. It believes all things hopes all things. This love, it never fails. Paul says, here's, you, you want to be a saint in this world. Those hard to love people that we all try to avoid, we all try to push out, we all try to marginalize, you learn how to put up with them by inviting them into your group. Man, if there's anyone who doesn't have a group, it shouldn't be these hard to love people. You want to know if you're hard to love or you invited in a group? Now you know. Paul says, you want to be a saint in this world. All humility, all gentleness, with patience, 
put up with one another and those hard to love ones, you invite them intentionally, strategically into your group. And those people specifically need to be loved. You want to be a reflection of God's glory. You take those people who are bristly, crusty, and cranky, and you bring them into your group and you love them like everybody else. And look at this last one. He says, and being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Be diligent, strategic, all in to preserving unity of the body. Everyone is committed to the utmost degree to keep peace and unity in relationships within the church. I mean, have you ever noticed that churches are known for their divisions? Paul said, you, you want to recognize who you are. He said, I'm begging you. Stop dividing and separating yourselves over dumb things. People get upset at churches over worship styles. Over how much light's in the sanctuary. We divide ourselves over politics. We divide ourselves over masks, no masks, vaccines, no vaccines, skin color, language, socioeconomic background, Chino, Chino Hills, Ayala, Chino Hills High School, Chino High School, Don Lugo High School, Ontario Christian High School. Oh, no, we homeschool. Oh, we divide ourselves based on all that? Paul said, stop. Man, you want to know what it looks like to be an instrument of God within this culture. Walk with all humility, all gentleness, all patience. Wait for God to dispense justice. I want you to be diligent, Paul says. Diligent to reaching out to those people who are hard to love and bringing them into your group. And I want you to be focused, intentional, all in on preserving unity and peace. I want to tell you, as a church, this is one of your greatest characteristics. As long as I've been here 20 years, this has been one of the most unified, committed to peace churches I've ever been a part of. I haven't been a part of a lot of churches, but you're still the best. (laughs) Paul says, you want to know what it's like to be an instrument of God. Here's how you do it. Here's how you walk. Why? Why? Why is that so important to have a unified church? Why is it so important that we as a body maintain and have these characteristics in our lives and in our community as a church? Why is it so important? Paul goes into that. He knows you so well. Look at verse four. Here's why. Because there is one body, one spirit, just as we were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Paul uses one word, repeats it seven times. Did you catch it? Why is it so important? Because God's one. Did you catch the members of the Trinity in this passage? Look again. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you are called in one hope of your calling, there's one Lord, one, one Messiah, one Savior. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. Hey, you want to be a reflection of God's glory? You know one of his best characteristics is unity? How would that go if Jesus and God the Father didn't get along? How'd that work if Jesus said, hey, I'm going, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit says, nah, no thanks. 
Oh, the Godhead working in unity together. There's oneness, but there's separateness. Man, it's amazing. It's a miracle. And we as a church are trying to help the world understand and see the glory of God. And yet the two institutions that God has designed to bring individuals together into oneness, we divide more than ever. Our churches divide over silly things and our marriages tend to divide over silly things too. Two institutions God has designed to be a reflection of the oneness and unity and miraculous power of God. And we wonder, why don't people believe in God? One of the main qualities we want to communicate to people about him, we can't reflect. Why is unity so important? Because you're an instrument of God. You're an instrument of a unified God. Paul says, I'm begging you, I'm imploring you, please, Just do it. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Grow in humility. Grow in gentleness. Grow in patience. You need to grow at putting up with people who are hard to love. Don't just tolerate them. Bring them in. Build relationships. Have them be a part of your group. And be diligent, be committed at all costs to keep the unity and peace within your church and your home. Paul says, please, I'm begging you. You want to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Number one, walk as one. But that doesn't mean you lose your individuality. That doesn't mean if we walk as one, then you let the pastor go forward and all y'all just kind of hang out behind him. That's not what it means. The second thing Paul says, I want you to walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling. Number one, walk together, walk in unity, walk as one. And number two, walk together. See, I'm convinced that there's people in every congregation who think that they're not gifted to help in any way. I don't have any gifts. I don't know what to contribute. You know that adage that 20% of the people do 80% of the work in a church. It's not just a church, by the way. It's culture, it's community, it's jobs, it's everything. All you who are teachers, it's group projects too, by the way. But look what Paul says. Verse 7, big biblical but right there. But just when you think that you can just sit back and do nothing, look what it says. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one of you have been gifted something. And not just part of something. To the measure of Christ's gift. It's fully complete in you. You have it up to the level of Christ. Man, you are full. You are ready. You are primed. Something's been given to you. That is going to be used by God and beneficial for your life. Man, it's a gift. It's not a burden. It's not a burden. It's not something to suffer. It's not something to fear. It's something to find and to understand because it's a gift of God given to you, each and every one of you. How do we walk together? Number one, through the gifting of all, recognizing each and every one of you has a gift. And this isn't something new. This is how God has worked through his people throughout time. And Paul wants us to see that by quoting a Psalm of David, a portion of it, Psalm 68. He says this, verse 8, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. 
Verse 9, now this expression, he, ex- he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also, he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. In other words, Paul says, this is about the triumphant plan of God. He was triumphant back when David celebrated it in Psalm 68, and he's still triumphant in you today. You want to understand all about descending into the lower parts, ascending into heaven, come Wednesday night, Pastor Jeff will have a perfect answer for you. He doesn't know that yet, but just our secret. Come Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. Paul says, I want you to walk as one, walk together first through the gifting of everyone. And this is important because look, look at verse 11. He says, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why? For Why did he give all these gifts? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. That term for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, that phrase is often used by shipbuilders to describe what they do for a ship. See, when you build a ship, you don't just build a hole and hope it floats. You build a hole and hope it floats and make sure that it floats and then you make sure it has all the tackle, all the sails, it has the anchor that it needs, it has the rudder, it has the steering wheel, whatever you call that thing. It has all of the necessary parts to accomplish its journey. Paul says, listen, we need you to walk together, number one, recognizing that each and every one of you has a gift. And each and every one of you have been given a gift for a purpose, for the equipping of the saints. That's you. Those of you who have been been saved by the grace of God, Paul addressed that in one through three. You're a saint. You don't have to die and perform three miracles. You're a saint, strictly based on God's work in your life. Each and every one of us have been given a gift for the making our lives together shipshape able to accomplish the journey that God has for us. How long, right? I mean, Brian, how long do I have to do that? If I'm working on each other's life, how long do I need to work in the nursery? How many years do I need to be a third and fourth grade Sunday school teacher? Ben, you ever asked that? How many years do I have to do that? How many years do I have to teach women's Bible study? How many years does a pastor need to be a pastor? How many years do people need to be on the elder board? How long, oh God, do we need to do this? When do I get to start receiving my spiritual pension? When do I get to drift off into the clouds with Jesus and just enjoy my life? Well, here's how long you need to be about the work of equipping each other until we all, key word there, all, not just your friends, not just the people in your small group, until we all attain to the unity of faith the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man and to the measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We need to be about using our gift to benefit each other until all of us reach a full measure of spiritual maturity and all have a clear and complete understanding of who God is and we have complete unity as a church. Other words, we're going to be out at a while. We're going to be out at a long while until kingdom come, actually. Paul's saying, you're going to be doing this until you see Jesus here, there, or in the air. 
Because the Bible already tells us that Jesus is going to have to complete all this. We're going to fall short. Jesus is going to come. How long, Brian, do we need to be about investing and serving and ministering and utilizing our gift until Christ comes back? Or until you die? You want to be a superintendent, retire? Fantastic. You want to have a job and retire? That's great. You do not get to retire from being a saint of Jesus Christ until he takes you home. There's no such thing. We need to be about it for the maturity of all until each and every one of us reaches a full stature of who Jesus desires us to be. And look at the result. I mean, why, right? Brian, that seems like a lot of work and a lot of time. And like, like why, why do we need to do it? Look at what happens. Number, uh, verse 14, as a result, it's the Bible talk for if you do verses 1 through 13, here's what happens. As a result of you all doing your part, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Paul says, if we all do 1 through 13, verses 1 through 13, we will have stability as Christians in a church. When new viruses come, We're not going to be swayed by that. We know our purpose. We know what we're about. It's not going to divide us. We might have to do our purpose differently. It's not going to mess us up. Every two years, the summer before, election season, where Christians seem to lose their minds. God's sovereign and in control the other 16 months of the year. But those four, good heavens. We get stability. And we're not led astray by lies, false teaching. One single strand, it can be broken, it can sway in the breeze, but a cord of three strands, multiple people connect together, there's strength and there's power. Paul says, if we all understand who we are, that we all have gifts and that we all need to be a part of equipping each other in the strength and glory of God, we will grow in maturity and we will gain stability. Can I ask you, do you think stability is a characteristic of the American church? What do you think? Do you think stability is a characteristic of most American Christians? Say, I don't. I think we are swayed and shifted based on who wrote the latest book or who has the biggest church or, or who has the most crazy thing to say or who's in presidency or who has Congress or who's our principal or who's our governor. We're swayed by all this stuff. Paul says, but when we all come together, we'll have stability. So what do we do? How do we do that? Again, Paul's brilliant. He answers it. Verse 15, look at this. By speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And look at this. From whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We want to grow as a church. You want stability. Each and every part, each and every one of us has to do our part. I have four minutes. Here's my rant. I think as the American Christian Church, we have moved away 
from expecting and empowering congregation members to be a part of ministry, and we have all gotten behind one pastor who has the ability to attract a crowd. We've become churches that are pastor-focused. If the pastor tells us this is what's right, that's what's right. If the pastor tells us this is how it looks, that's how it looks. And if we don't like the pastor, then we leave all of our friends and all of our commitments and all of our ministries and go find another church who can attract more people in a way that we like them. Does that sound like Ephesians 4? And you want to know why there's a lack of stability in churches? And I'm only 52, so I don't know it all. But man, I'm convinced of this. When we allow pastor-centric churches, it weakens the church and it weakens the Christian. Paul says, if we want to grow in the image of Christ, in maturity, in stability, it's speaking the truth in love where each one of us, according to the proper working of each individual part, Each one of you needs to speak the truth in love. And let me speak to that real quick. Speaking the truth. Not just letting people go down the road of falsehood. Man, we need to speak truth, but it's truth in love. It doesn't mean just smacking people over the head with your Bible verse that you don't know them personally. It's just not going to work, folks. Assuming people are just as broken as I am, I don't like being corrected and I don't like being told what to do. Maybe it goes back to my lack of humility that's all the way back in verse 4. You can grow that in me. But you know where I hear it? Man, there's a number of men and women who have walked life with me for 20 years. They have cared for my wife. They have protected my children. They have walked through some of the hardest times of my life with me. And when those people come up and they speak truth in my life, I know they love me and I know they love you. And so when they come and exhort and encourage and speak into my life, I hear it because I know who they are. That's why we have this desire. Please find your people. Find a group. We're not going to break you up every six months. We want you to find people that you know, that you love, that you trust so that when you need to hear a difficult truth, you will receive it. And when there's someone in your group that you need to share a difficult truth with, you will share it. That's why we want you to get together in a group. It's no other motive other than that. We're going to grow into a mature believer and church if we can empower and equip each and every one of you to be a part of the ministry. I want to be clear on this. I don't think I was super clear first service. See, being here 20 years and as we've grown, the natural entropy is that my voice gets louder and the elder board's voice gets softer. And that's not the way it should be. And that's why many of you hear me all the time. I talk about our elder board. I am one of, one voice of. I submit to them. I submit to us because I'm convinced when 10 people seek the will of the Lord and 10 people agree on when and how and why, it gives me confidence because I'm well aware of my continued selfishness, my continued greed, my continued fear. If we're led by one person, it makes us weaker. But if we're led with all of us completing our part, that's why Paul says, please, if you understand who you are, 
and everything that God has done in you and desires to do through you. Paul says, please just do it. I'm done talking about it. I'm done trying to convince you. Paul says, now I'm just going to tell you what it looks like and hope to God that you do it. Please walk as one. Please walk together. If we do, we will grow maturity and stability and we will see God do even greater things beyond what we ask, think, or even imagine when we do it together. Let's pray. Jesus, as a church, we uh, confess to you that it's a lot of times it's easier to just show up at church and sing and do our Sunday thing and then go about our lives. But God, we also confess that when we do that, and we have a culture of Christians who do that, we end up with a marginalized movement, instability within our ranks, and a lack of maturity within our lives. So God, I pray that you will open our eyes and allow us to see the power of our church as you do. God, open our eyes that we can see ourselves as you do, God, that we would grow in maturity and gentleness, recognizing that our position and all we have is given from you. God, open our hearts that we'd be committed to unity, God, that we would be more gracious to those who just get under our skin. And not only gracious, but God, give us courage that we'll take intentional steps to embrace those people into our lives. Because, God, that's what you did with us. God, give us confidence. God, so many Christians feel like we have nothing to give, a God of all creation. We got to help us to recognize that you have put something in us that you desire to use for our growth and for your benefit. So, God, give us confidence in who you have created us to be. And God, help us as a church to continue to learn how to bind everyone together in ways that each and every one of us can be a part of your work. God, may you grow us in stability. May you grow us in unity. God, may you grow us in obedience that we would walk and we would be defined first and foremost above anything else as saints as instruments of your glory. We pray everything in Jesus' name.